Hello, this is uh, Sam Hazardine, our founder of MedWorld, um, with another edition of our Better Together podcast. And today I'm really happy to be interviewing Dr. Melan Hahn, um, who has very graciously uh, um, agreed to be here. I didn't realize it was Memorial Day in the United States, and so she's here on a public holiday, a rare public holiday for an academic doctor. So thank you for being here. Um, Dr. Hahn is Professor of Medicine in the Division of Pulmonary and Critical Care at the University of Michigan. She is both, she's an accomplished physician but, and, and she's also a researcher, also an academic. And interestingly, I think from, from our perspective, she's taken a prominent public advocacy position um, and as part of that serves as a spokesperson for the American Lung Association. She is currently an associate editor for the American Journal of Respiratory and Critical Care Medicine and serves on the editorial boards of Thorax, Lancet, Respiratory Medicine and the Journal of, COPD, of, of the COPD Foundation. She is also a member of the Global Obstructive Lung Disease Scientific Committee, which is charged with developing internationally an, a, a recognised consensus statement on COPD diagnosis and management. So she is a busy doctor. Welcome, Melan. It's great to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. Absolute pleasure. And look, looking forward to uh, understanding a bit about you, a bit about your specialty area, and um, seeing what you know wisdom we can you can impart to to our audience. I mean, firstly, I'd love to know why you chose medicine. Um, why did you decide to get into the medical field? And I guess as part of that, you know, has anything surprised you? Anything you weren't expecting? So I grew up in rural Idaho, and I know we've got a very global audience here, and so that may not mean much to some people, but it's a very rural part of the United States, maybe not like unlike certain parts of New Zealand, sure. uh, but uh, you know, I didn't have a lot of exposure necessarily to medicine. My mother was a nurse, and I actually thought that her she worked way too hard, and I, I decided I didn't want to do that, but then... I actually had a high school teacher who said, you know, I really think this might be a good fit for you. You should think about it. And so I trusted her and I and I took it to heart and I started looking into it more. And then the thing that honestly clinched it for me was I had the opportunity to uh, be, I don't even know if they call it this anymore, but they used to in the U.S. call it Candy Striper. So Candy Striper was a volunteer, usually like a junior volunteer at a local hospital. So I was a Candy Striper. Okay for the, the local hospital. And uh, because of the rural location, it wasn't very heavily regulated and I got to do pretty much everything. Uh, assist, you know, assist uh, in the emergency room. I was there for, you know, codes and, and procedures. And I thought it was one of the most exciting and thrilling things that I'd ever done. And so I think at that point I was, um, I was pretty much hooked. But one of the things that I still value most about medicine, I think, is that there um, is so much value in the work mm -hmm. and you can feel good about, you know, doing something that's interesting, exciting, uh, and that at the same time, you're really helping people. I think the other thing I love about medicine is that, and you asked me what, what were some of my biggest surprises? I think when, you know, particularly when you're younger and you think about medicine, you think about sort of just this, you think about the doctors that you had growing up, right? So you think yeah. about the pediatrician and yeah. you imagine what that life is like. And I think perhaps one of the greatest joys and surprises for me is that medicine is so flexible and there are so many things you can do on a, a, a daily basis that are not just 
you know, going necessarily going into the office and seeing patients, although I still do that and enjoy that. There have been so many opportunities to do other things and influence change. So, uh, so you know, it, that's, I think, for me over time, become something else about medicine that I really enjoy and value. Yeah, and that, that strikes me, you know, when we speak, um, you know, how enthusiastic you are about, about the profession. And, you know, I mean, as you'll know, a lot of doctors are struggling. Um, I recently did, um, I did a study and was looking at a cohort of doctors one and two were in burnout pre-COVID, two and three are in burnout, you know, now. Um, so COVID has been really tough on us, but we were already struggling as a profession. And, and I'm interested in that, you know, your enthusiasm. I mean, have you have you been this enthusiastic about the profession always? Have you had any struggles in terms of burnout? And and, and I think one of the things, I, you know, one of the words I heard there was flexibility. Um, and I think that's interesting because I, not all doctors see medicine as a flexible profession. You know, some of us see it as a very um, prescribed course um, with very limited flexibility. And I'm in, interested in your yeah, perspective on that. There's a lot of questions there, but it's, you know, I guess it's, have you always been this enthusiastic? Did you have any struggles? And, and, and what do you put it down to being this enthusiastic about our profession? we've all struggled right at at certain points of time and you know I actually took over as as chief of the division here at the University of Michigan in January and so I am now I I like to think I don't know what the best word is I like to think of myself as sort of like the shepherd in chief yeah I can. over I have roughly seven pulmonary faculty that uh that I have sort of under my charge right now and and burnout has definitely impacted everyone across the health system, right? But particularly pulmonary and critical care where we really yeah. got hit. And and Michigan, where I live, is on its, just finished its, or sort of in the middle of its fourth surge. Oh, wow. So it's been, it has been, um, it has been brutal. And, and so many of my faculty, particularly, unfortunately, female physicians, I think, have really um, had it the worst because of, childcare impacting them even right. even more so and not being able to get their work done and things like that. So so I am acutely aware. I guess I'm also fortunate though in that academics in particular has a, has afforded me a lot of flexibility and you know one of the things I actually like about my career path I guess is that it's it's changed a lot. So when I first graduated from fellowship, I thought I was going to do primarily just focus on clinical medicine. Right. And then I had the opportunity to get a master's degree in clinical research. Yeah. And that led to me then starting to get more involved with research and doing papers. And then I've started, I got into doing uh, clinical trials and uh, data analysis. But then I've also, as you mentioned uh, at the intro, I've now in the last few years had the opportunity to also get more involved with uh, advocacy and trying to push for change at a national and international level. And so maybe it's that maybe I, you know, I had not actually sat down to think about it before our interview, but to a certain extent, I guess I do keep reinventing myself mm. so, Yeah. and have continued to find new avenues to sort of focus my energies that keep me inspired. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, because of my uh, being a spokesperson for the American Lung Association, I uh, did this, another podcast, which in the U.S. is popular. It's called Freakonomics. Oh, yeah. And, 
And so after I did, the, we, it was all about rationing and talking about mechanical ventilators and, and how we breathe. And after I did that, an editor at a large publishing house in New York heard it, and and he reached out to me, and that's what led me to actually write a book oh, yeah. during the beginning of lockdown. And that's opened up a whole wealth of, of opportunities. But one of the things that I think is most, so fun about medicine, I guess, is I always think, when's that next? bend around the corner mm. that I don't know is coming, right? Like I didn't anticipate the book. Yeah. Um, but get to do that is like, you know, just, I mean, you know, let's things like this podcast even. And yeah. so I, I guess I, maybe I'm an optimist, but I'm always, always excited about what that next bend around the corner is going to be. Yeah. I think that, I mean, then that seems, it's such a great um, way of looking at life, isn't it? And, and I think something, well, something I've learned, I guess, in, in the last few years, are you, you know, when you're younger, you're, and you're at medical school, you know, it's, it's, there's that total focus, isn't it? You know, get into medical school, get through it. And, and and I think, you know, there's times when you need that in your life just to be, you know, blinkers on and and there's a single single goal. But uh, but over time, and particularly with having children and, and other parts of life, I've become much more open to being surprised by life. And, and I think... Um, when you approach things with that, yeah, and it sounds like you're the same, it's like, what what could come up? And, and if you're open to being surprised, then it allows you, I guess, to sort of step through those doors as they open and, and not just be, you know, stuck on a single path. And and, and I th just think it's really interesting from, because I talk to a lot of doctors who struggle with medicine, struggle with um, with what they see as a very prescribed course and, you know, keep the blinkers on, get your specialty, you know, get, get your specialist ticket by your mid thirties. And then, and then what am I going to do exactly the same thing for the next 30 years? But I think what, what you show, what you live is that, that there is no one path. Yeah, I, that, I think that is, it's funny. I was speaking to someone recently and, you know, academic currency for us is writing papers, right? Yeah, and oh yeah. she said to me, well, after you, after you write that paper, do you just feel empty? Do you just like, yeah, it was kind of exciting. But then she's like, she was saying to me where, you know, where, where is the joy? Yeah. And it's funny because that had just, it, that had never sort of, I'd never thought about it, thought about it that way. But I, I guess for me, yeah, it's, it, it's, there's almost a, a creative aspect sure. to the whole to the whole process, you know, even being in something that seems sort of as cut and dry as research, right? It's how you present the data, how you get that message out, how you how you help it have impact. Yeah. Um, you know, and just kind of so yeah, so I, I think I'm always always, you know, thinking and looking for that that next thing that I that I could do where you know, sort of where those passions al align between, you know, medicine and helping other people. Yeah, I, I love it. And, and, and it's, it's, it's led you and it's led to a very obviously rich current place in your career. And, 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 you know, who knows what comes comes in the future. And I guess that's, that's pretty exciting. You seem like you're quite a curious person. Um, curious as to what could come next. Yeah, but I mean, I think, I think, to a certain extent, you, you know, this, I know this is sort of like, I guess a little bit like a philosophy, but, but, you know, if you kind of keep yourself sort of open to the universe to a certain extent, right. But you also kind of have those core values and things that are important to you always kind of front and center, then I think that really helps you sort of, you know, when you, you know, I don't know whether it's you create those opportunities or you attract the opportunities. I'm not sure 
which it is, but if you're sort of kind of open and out there and you know what's important to you, what you're looking for, for me in general, ultimately, you know, the, the opportunities have at some point sort of presented themselves. And, um, and it's, you know, I, you know, is it been perfect? No. Have I had disappointments? Absolutely. Have I always gotten every job that I've wanted or whatever grant that I've applied for is every paper I've been submitted not accepted? Of course not. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but, you know, but ultimately, ultimately, yes, I have very much learned to enjoy the journey. Yeah. Yeah. I think you make a good point though. You know, um, there is no real way of answering, is there? Whether you create the opportunities, whether they you attract them to you, or whether you just notice the opportunities that have already always been there. You know, it's if it's purely a, a brain reticular activating system thing, but that actually doesn't matter. Um, I've spent a bit of time thinking about it, and the conclusion I got to is it actually doesn't matter. Um, it just it does actually work. You know, if you if you remain open, life seems to you know the opportunities do present themselves to to you. Look, I think one of the things that you've done um, is, is taken quite a public um, position within within our profession, um, you know, in advocacy and, and education, both of doctors and patients, and, and at a higher level in terms of, you know, advocating for, for, for change, um, you know, I, I guess at a, at, a, at a governmental level. Um, what was it that, you know, was there anything that lent you towards, you know, um, making you decide to lend your voice to, to what it is that you are passionate about and care about? What was it that made you step forward and, I guess, put your head above the parapet? And, and the reason, you know, one of the reasons I asked this, it was interesting, we we're doing this, re again, this research around COVID and burnout. And I spoke to a lot of the doctors who we, who we researched. And, and you know, I was was talking to the to the media as well who were really interested in actually sharing the story and and of the doctors who were prepared to share their story not a single one was prepared to put their name to it and and the reason for that was that they were just like we we don't want to be seen as agitating um it's going to be it's going to hurt us it's going to be harmful for us and 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 so that i mean that very much seems to be quite prevalent within medicine is we we try and keep our head down um and you've obviously put your head up um, and that comes with, you know, with all sorts of things. You know, what was it that sort of made you, you know, become a voice? And, and why don't you talk about what it is that you, you know, what, what you are a voice for? Yeah. You know, it's it's funny because there is part of me, and maybe this is just part of our training as physicians, but there is part of me that every time I hear my name or see my name or something or hear someone talk about me or someone says, oh, she's an advocate or social media, this or whatever, I cringe. There is part of me that continues yeah. to cringe yeah. because, because there is a part of that that's so anti my usual nature. Yep. Um, and so the question is, is it worth, is it worth, you know, kind of fighting against that to kind of pop your head uh, up and even and I even worry, you know, I, I worry about, you know, we all worry about negative reaction from the public, but I I honestly also worry about negative reaction from my own colleagues mm -hmm. uh, because, you know, that I, you know, they did, might not think I'm credible or it doesn't make me as good of a researcher or, you know, or, a, you know, or that others will say, well, why is she, you know, she's just hungry for the spotlight or, you know, I can in my head imagine a million reasons why why um, others might not view it in a positive light, right? Oh. So, so having said all that, 
you know, uh, about, I don't know, five, I can't remember now, maybe 10 years ago, the American Lung Association had approached me to be a spokesperson for them, which was really sort of my first sort of for like major foray into advocacy. But, you know, one of the things that drove me to enter pulmonary medicine in the first place is that at least in the U.S., many of the patients who have chronic lung disease uh, tend to be socioeconomically disadvantaged. They live in rural areas. And I had always sort of had a heart for that patient population. Mm. And that was part of why I chose to study chronic obstructive pulmonary disease and uh, and had, had focused much of my work. And so it seemed to me that I had a group of patients that that still were really struggling. We weren't, they were getting funding. We didn't have cures. And somebody needed to be help be a voice for them. And so I think that was ultimately what got me to sort of, just sort of my frustration around the issue. Uh, and my specialty in general, and I don't know if this is true in, in New Zealand, but in, in the United States, uh, cardiology seems to trump everything. <laughs> cardiology and maybe oncology. Uh, but pulmonary, generally speaking, has not received a lot of attention, public health funding, nothing. We don't screen for the disease. We don't create drugs for the for diseases. We just, and even now with a COVID-19 pandemic, despite that, um, little, little has gone into uh, understanding lung disease. And so I, I, you know, I think ultimately at some point I just got really frustrated. I felt like the patients didn't have a voice. Somebody has to advocate for these patients. And so I just sort of slowly started trying to, you know, get myself out there a little bit more to see if we could make some headway. And, and but, you know, I think um, over the last couple of years, what really I think has kind of sort of propelled me a little bit even to even go at this harder in the last year really has been COVID because I, I saw, you know, sort of this crisis where the lack of, of public health funding uh, for respiratory diseases and research for respiratory diseases, I feel really did contribute to the excess deaths that we saw with, the, with this pandemic. And so, and so, you know, I think it's sort of that frustration and, and you know, maybe it's sort of the, just this global physician frustration with the situation uh, that is, I think, just kind of fueled me even further uh, since the pandemic that we absolutely have to get, uh, we have to get, you know, we have to get more done to understand lung disease, to prevent, you know, patients from going into respiratory failure, occurring respiratory failure, et cetera. Everything that we saw played out in millions of people mm. across the world uh, during the pandemic, I think we could have, I think we could have done, done better. So I think it, the pandemic in a way is just sort of help to confirm my resolve yep. on the importance of this issue. But at the same time, you are right. There is part of me that's, that still cringes a bit. I mean, it's the case with a lot of doctors, I think, who, who do take a public position. I think um, um, Daniel Jones um, um, is, is a friend and she's you know known on, on social media as Mama Dr. Jones. She's got like two, two million followers. Um, and, 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 you know, when I met her, I was just so, you know, interesting, like yourself, um, very grounded, very down to earth. And, and I think, you know, you, you mentioned values before. And, and, and to me, um, that seems to be the thing that differentiates um, the doctors you know, who take a really public position, um, who, you know, 
it differentiates them in a really positive way. I mean, what, 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 what sort of, what are your, what, what are your values? What, what are you, um, what's important to you? Yeah, I think, you know, ultimately trying to help patients, you know, finding cures is sort of, uh, I think ends up being what I call sort of my true North. Yep. And, if if something comes up where there's an opportunity or a way that I think I can actually make a difference, yeah. uh, you know, it either you know on a local level or you know at a whatever that level is, um, then if that resonates with me, then then that's something that that you know ultimately will be you know important to me and something that I'll 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 pursue. I think it's. There's definitely a lot of noise right now, right? There's a, there's a lot going on, and you pr- you know you probably get emails about this, that, and the other thing, and contact. Please do this. Please do that. Blah blah blah. But so you're right. I think in order to, not that I'm great at this, I, I but but I think in order to keep your own self um, from burning out and and kind of you know staying true to yourself and having enough energy for the things that are important to you. At least over time, I found I've gotten I've, I need to be a lot more selective mm-hmm. about where I focus my energies. Yeah, yeah, and I think values are they're a great filter for picking opportunities that are going to move towards you know as you say your your true north. I mean, it sounds like you know I mean I think all all doctors want to want to make a difference whether and and I think you know from a medical school perspective it's you know we start with a one on one patient um, making yeah. a difference. What, I mean, you've mentioned that you've just, you saw the need. Um, was, was that the only thing that shifted you from just making a difference with individual patients to making a more, a, a, a more, um, a difference with many people? Was that the thing that really um, was the, what made the difference? Well, you know, part of it, interestingly enough, was the process of, of writing this book oh, yeah. too. So I'd already got, so I, I, I guess for, for people who don't know, I wrote a, a book during the pandemic, it's called Breathing Lessons, and it talks to, and it explains to patients how their lungs work, but there's also the whole last chapter is all about kind of the crisis of lung health and and where we're at right now and, and what we need to do to move forward. But the interesting thing is that I think you've probably heard this phrase before, and I'm not, I, I don't own this phrase, it's been coined by others, but I still like it. And it's this concept of like, everyone has their own zone of genius. Mm-hmm. And in, you know, after I, I did that Freakonomics podcast and then I started to work on the book and I worked with my editor on it, et cetera, I came to realize that one of the things that I was good at was uh, trying to uh, break down complicated concepts into things that were simple and understandable and could really convey a message, whether that's to to patients or to, like I said, poly, policymakers or, or public health officials, et, et cetera. And so I felt, I think, kind of going through that experience and coming to the realization that there was maybe this, like, one thing that that I was good at yep. or, you know, was naturally to me, it made me realize that was something that, that, that I should capitalize on and that I should kind of lean in. Well, if that's the one thing I'm good at, then maybe that's the one thing I should lean in on with and to see if I can, you know, help make a difference. Yeah, yeah. Because I mean, with medicine, and that's an interesting thing, isn't it? You know, with you know, medicine, often doctors do speak a language that patients um, nod um, and say yes to, but really don't understand them. Um, I mean, you, you, know, you are obviously good at getting your message across, whether that's at a policy level, whether it's you know to other doctors, or whether it's to patients. 
have you applied what sort of principles do you apply to actually making your message understandable you know are they, are they you know are they marketing principles or did you, did you learn that or do you naturally do that well i think there's a couple of things one i i naturally think in metaphors oh yeah so i and i and also and also like i'm not i'm never the smartest person in the room never my 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 colleagues always understand and grasp things probably quickly more quickly than I do. So by the time I chew on something long enough to understand it, by the like to break it down for myself, at that point it's pretty simple. So it's not so hard to explain to someone else once I finally figure it out. Yeah, right. Um, <laughs> as as sad as sad as that sounds. <laughs> So, so I, I think that that's part of it, but also, you know, as part of my work through the American Lung Association, I did get a little bit of quote unquote media training. Yeah. And what I realized from that training was that, uh, you know, everybody wants to hear a story, right? Um, and, and the, the more that you can kind of craft your message into a, a story, the more interested people, uh, will be in it. And, and also to just kind of, when you're talking about a concept, to have this, the, the, I guess the the idea in your mind that you're that that you're presenting, you're framing something for someone in a new way, and then kind of offering that up as a gift, and to think about the presentation or whatever it is you have to say, uh, as as this like idea gift that that you're giving to people, as sort of a way to get them engaged and. And, and more interested in in what you have to say. So so I have, I guess I, guess I think there's probably maybe, like I said, a, a certain amount of the way I frame things that helps, but I've also uh, had the opportunity to learn from a lot of people along the way as well. I really like that concept of an idea gift. Um, I, I mean, I have a belief that every doctor has a message um, and, or, 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 or has something that they're really good at that can help other doctors and that's part of you know our med world platform we've got a, a part on that called insights and insights is where you know doctors can publish um everything that's not covered by clinical papers well you know when i was looking into um how do we move the needle or how do we start to move the needle on doctors and our well-being and what i call the health of medicine which is you know the individual doctor it's you know our community of doctors and it's how we practice medicine what I found really interesting is that while we love practicing everything, you know, as much as we can on clinical papers, um, and, and, you know, it's great to have clinical papers, and, you know, I, I, I'll, I'll just share this now. This is, I've, I've been published once recently. <laughs> um, it, it's not The Lancet. It's the Journal of Holistic Healthcare, but whatever, I'm published, uh, and I'll take it. Um, in this room, you're definitely the smartest person. Um, but anyway, um, what, what I found is that, you know, actually – it's less than half of what we do is covered by clinical papers. You know, there's a huge amount of our medicine, which is the art of medicine. It's the conversations, it's leadership, it's management, it's running our medical businesses. It's, it's how we interact with colleagues. It's how we manage our finances. It's, you know, how we, how we have a relationship within, you know, within the world of being a busy doctor. Like all these things that actually make up what, the, what we do in medicine. And so we created this thing called Insights, which is where doctors can publish what's going really well for them. Um, that's not covered by clinical papers. It's you know, it's it's it's, it's a there's a lower um, standard of evidence required um, because it's on personal experience. But I but I love that idea of you know that you know publishing. Uh, and it's an idea gift. It's how do you frame something in a way 
that someone might just get a different perspective because you don't necessarily have to give someone the roadmap. Sometimes all you have to do is, is open someone's mind up to a different way and allow them to come to their own conclusions. Yeah, absolutely. I'm excited to, I did, I have to admit, I didn't know about your uh, publishing site, so I will be excited to uh, check it out, but you're absolutely right. You know, the sad and funny thing is that the farther along I've gotten, I spend more and more time doing administration and less and less time actually seeing patients. And the thing that bothers me about, well, there's multiple things about that that bother me, but there's just so much to be learned from interacting with individual patients. I have learned so much yep. from my patients about how to diagnose, how to think about disease, just, you know, how to interact with people, everything. It's, it's such an amazing learning lab. Mm. And, uh, and so I, that, that's the one thing that I, I worry about is I, I, I want to continue to learn and grow as a physician and, and not having as much of those experiences worries me. So I, yeah. I love this idea of doctors being able to share their own, you know, sort of nuggets of wisdom, um, you know, on a central site so we can all learn from each other. I mean, even that, just what you said there, opens my perspective up, you know, learning from our patients. It's like, where, 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 do, you, where do you learn best as a parent? You learn from your children, don't you? You don't learn, I mean, yes, you learn from books and you can learn from other parents and stuff, but the journey of being a parent is is the greatest yeah you know the greatest challenge and the greatest you know it helps you to become the best parent you can be but but interestingly changing that perspective well patients can be that you know that that's the similar sort of relationship isn't it absolutely absolutely i would i mean there's right i mean you can only learn so much in medical school but i think 99% of what we learn about being a doctor and how you diagnose and just just that art of medicine comes from just doing it yeah. and, and being patients one-on-one. No, no doubt. I mean, I know when I finished medical school, the, one of the best things I did when I started working as a doctor was make friends with the nurses and just ask their opinion um, before I made any decision. Amazingly, how often I agreed with that, that, that opinion um, as a junior doctor. <laughs> Um, is it, you know, I guess, you know, pulmonary health is, is, is your, 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 your passion, your area. Um, are, are there any things in, within pulmonary health that, that doctors that you find that doctors don't know that would be just beneficial for for general for doctors to understand? Well, I think one of the things that I've come to realize, sort of in the process of of writing the book uh, this last year and just thinking about sort of the crisis of lung health, generally speaking is that we have to remember that the lungs really develop in three phases and there's sort of this in utero phase, there's the childhood phase and there's the adult phase. And I think the misconception, at least the misconception I had when I started practice was that most people get to adulthood with generally healthy lungs. We would know it if they were unhealthy, wouldn't we? And then, you know, through unhealthy behaviors or dusty or dirty jobs, people accumulate lung damage and that determines who gets sick. Mm. But it turns out that that is not the correct rubric for for how to be thinking about lung health really so a lot of stuff can happen in development um you know even in utero even like nicotine and air pollution exposure to moms uh can actually damage developing lungs their prematurity is a huge issue uh we've got more and more babies that are being born mature prematurely now than ever mm -hmm. uh there is so much stuff that can happen during childhood and because we don't routinely measure uh, lung function, the only way to get this at this data 
is looking at life course trajectories, and there's only a few such studies. Actually, there's a, a really great Tasmanian cohort uh, study, and I actually um, get I actually have regular calls with the, those investigators. But but when you look at these life course studies, what you find are huge variations. There's kids that have delayed growth, kids that have supernormal growth, and everybody ends up getting to adulthood. Somewhere, you know, it's a it's a huge normal curve, and we, like I said, I think we made this assumption that everybody was healthy, but we weren't checking, and we still don't check. So okay. there's a lot of people that are entering adulthood with stunted lung growth, okay. even though they may have normal height. Yeah. And what that leads to then is when you look at people that then get uh, impaired lung function adult, when we finally that group of people that we finally pick up lung disease in. It turns out that there's a significant number of those that never reached adulthood with normal lung function in the first oh, place. Wow. And that was actually one of the key factors. So, so because of that, um, uh, you know, we have to really start thinking about lung health as something that starts in the womb. And we have to start talking to our patients about how we protect the respiratory health of their infants. We have to start talking to parents about, you know, Respiratory immunizations. This means things like anti-idling policies in, in children's schools. It means thinking about air, indoor air pollution within the home, um, outdoor air pollution, obviously vaping and smoking when kids start to get into middle school, etc. And then, of course, there's, yes, there's all the adult stuff. But even there, you know, while we typically think, oh, well, you know, it's the smokers or, oh, it's, it's you know, the construction workers or the coal miners. Well, there's also... The nail technicians and the hairdressers and all these other people that are, you know, sanitation workers, people that are also exposed to um, a lot of chemicals and, and, and unhealthy air and things like that. So I think if there was, you know, just maybe one thing that I, I would say is that we have to, as healthcare practitioners, start taking a much more, light, I guess, global view over the life course when we're thinking about how, how, how to help, um, particularly with respect with with respect to disease prevention for our patients. Yeah, okay, fantastic. I mean, I mean, and doctors can play a huge part in that education piece, isn't it? I mean, that, that's obviously part of what you're passionate about is education. And I guess if we, if you understand that, you can play a much bigger role with parents and, you know, with young people. And, and I guess also as well, it, 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 there's also a, an element of it can help with your, the compassion you have for your, your patients because, um, I think you, you, it's an interesting point when you said that, and I was like, "Oh, what's my understanding?" And and I guess when I reflected on it as you were talking, it's almost like as doctors, we you know we kind of think, "Well, all lungs are created equal. Well, nothing else in the body is created equal, is it?" So why would it be the case for lungs? Um, and, and so yeah, I, I, that's a really interesting perspective to from a, from a medic, from a doctor. Yeah, I think one of the problems is that, that traditionally lung disease has had a lot of stigma attached to it because we just assume, and doctors included, that, well, okay, if you have a chronic lung disease, it's probably because you smoke, yeah. you had unhealthy habits, it's probably your own fault. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, it's, just, it's just not the case. And, well, and, you know, we also don't hold any other disease to that same standard, right? We don't not treat heart attacks or invest in in lung or in heart research because somebody ate too many cheeseburgers or, or whatever it was. Yeah. So, so we, we, you know, that's just not a helpful way of thinking about it, but to be honest, sort of the burden of the problem became even more clear to me during COVID because, um, you know, for instance, just as an example, 
we um, they estimated there were in the American West when we had wildfires during one of the COVID surges, an excess 20,000 cases of COVID and 1,000 deaths just in this area of Oregon that had COVID and wildfires going on at the same time. And so for the first time, you could actually measure an exposure, air pollution, at a very specific outcome, COVID infections, because both were being actively tracked at the same time. Mm. And what that tells me is that outside of COVID, there's probably a lot of lung damage going on for a lot of us all the time Mm. that goes under the radar we wouldn't have noticed except we had a respiratory pandemic and somebody was measuring. But how does that actually contribute to, you know, chronic lung disease over time or, you know, some other respiratory, you know, getting sick from the flu or other respiratory infections? So I think it, what that tells me is that the problem just sort of of, you know, needing to be more conscious and messaging about prevention and sort of this concept of lung injury is probably even more profound than we gave it credit to. And I think it's become more obvious, at least to me, because of the pandemic. Yeah. Well, and maybe, maybe, hopefully maybe that'll be one of the positive things that comes out of the pandemic is a bit more uh, resource towards um, towards this area. Well, you would think. <laughs> That's what you would think. But so far, it really hasn't happened. We've had tons of energy put into COVID vaccines and to uh, COVID-specific antivirals, which is great. It's Mm -hmm. important. Not saying we shouldn't have it because we've obviously come a long way and saved millions of lives because of it. But we've seen very little research into lung injury, into ARDS, into even like mechanical ventilator technologies or recovering or, or, you know, how do we help scarred lungs and things like that. So there's still, unfortunately, unfortunately, I, I thought there would be more movement on this area and there hasn't been so i guess that just means i have a lot of work to do <laughs> i guess you do your, vo- your voice is still required but isn't that so often the case? i mean it's it's it, it is quite a medical thing isn't it that you're dealing with the urgent uh and the important longer term stuff um doesn't necessarily get the resource or attention it, it requires and and that's that, that's i'm i don't say that as a, i mean i don't say that as a as a judgmental criticism either i was talking to a friend of mine the other day and there was a lot of a lot of um uh, criticism in New Zealand about why we hadn't um, increased our ICU bed capacity. You know, we knew this pandemic's coming, and we've had we've had hard lockdowns to prevent you know big surges because we only had like 180 odd beds ICU beds in New Zealand. We didn't have a lot, wow. Um, wow. and so but, but but we've managed it. In a, you know, we've we've kind of shut the borders and 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 and, and we've we've managed it uh, in that respect. But, but, you know, there's a lot of criticism. But, you know, why didn't we, why haven't we just up the ICU beds? And, and he said, he was saying to me, he said, Sam, we're already operating at 120% capacity. Um, you know, and not, 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 not literally in terms of ICU beds. He just said, as a, as, as a profession, we're already well past capacity. He said, where's the excess capacity in Banwood to be thinking about increasing you know the icu size and to be putting energy into this he you know he said we didn't we don't have we don't have another spare minute in the day already how can we approach it so you know it it requires a, a different approach doesn't it? it actually requires us to up resource at the kind of upstream as opposed to just go well leave it to the doctors to sort out because if you're already operating at full capacity there is no room to be thinking about this other stuff that is one of the most ironic things that has occurred during the pandemic, and that is that the hospitalists and the critical care doctors and the pulmonologists have all been so busy 
taking care of COVID and that they haven't been out there to advocate. They haven't been out there to talk about some of these problems that you just mentioned, and they haven't been out there to, you know, agitate for more funding or even apply. Mm. So the National Institutes of Health, for instance, here in the United States has put out, you know, specific funding announcements. Almost no, no pulmonologists have had time to do any of them because they're all so busy taking care of patients. Yeah, right. So it's, it's a sort of the perfect storm. Yeah, yeah. And it's, I mean, and, and I guess it's one as a profession we're going to continue facing and, um, I guess there's a couple of ways we've got to think about how do, how, how do you make change within a broken system and the other is how do you fix the system and I think we need both approaches. And we have to think about how to be more flexible. Definitely, I, I'm not sure what the solution is, but I've definitely spent some time thinking about how do you build in surge capacity and there's definitely, I think, more physicians and more critical care physicians that are actively trying to work through those issues and think about you know, what can we do at a system level yep, yep. Um, to try to fix that? Because I'm sure this will not be our last pandemic. Absolutely not. Absolutely. And would be silly to think it will be. I would imagine. Unfortunately. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, look, I'm sure we could keep talking for ages. Um, but as we I spoke with you at the start, we've got doctors listening. And so they're probably... Uh, the page has probably gone off 15 times already. So just to finish up, um, um, you know, if you could go back in time and speak to your 18-year-old self, um, what, 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 are, what are the three most important things that you have, of, of advice would you give, whether it's medical or life advice, what, what advice would you give to yourself to help yourself live you know, a, a great life? Well, that's a hard one. Uh, I, and I, you know, you, I've been thinking about this. So, you know, I think one of the things, I don't know, maybe this is, maybe this is unique to me. I don't know. Uh, but I think when I was starting out for sure, you know, it get, you know, the process of getting into medical, you know, just getting into medical school is hard, surviving medical school is hard. It's very competitive. Right. And yep. then there's, you know, who gets picked for this residency and who gets picked for that fellowship, et cetera, et cetera. And it can be very hard on your ego yeah. <laughs> and very hard on sort of your self-esteem. And so I think I probably, if I had to go back and, and, and talk to my younger self, I would have said something along the lines of you are smart enough, you are good enough and to have, you know, more confidence in yourself and your ideas and mm -hmm. just really, you know, you're smart enough and, you know, uh, and your ideas are good enough, uh, to, you know, to, to, you know, to, to still be able to make a significant contribution. Yeah. So I think that honestly probably would have been the, the main message to my younger self to, to not stress out quite so much, to not be quite so anxious and, and to, and to realize that, you know, it, you know, there's, I think there, there's, there's so much room in medicine for so many people to make different kinds of contributions mm. and, and everyone will ultimately kind of figure out their own path. Yeah, that's a great piece of advice. And, and, and just the way medicine's structured, it's structured in a really great way to make really smart people feel really stupid, isn't it? Um, you know, it's the hardest course pretty much to get into at university. And, and so you know, then if doctors aren't getting onto training programs or, aren't, you know, you've got to remember the cohort that you're in 
and 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 just the fact that you've got a seat at the table um i mean means you're infinitely smart enough to make an impact uh, to that, that your, your your ideas are worthy that that, that, that you've got something really valuable to offer and there are different ways to do that. And you don't have to be the smartest person in the room necessarily to do that. No. I think that's really, I, it's, I think it's, and I think it's even harder now. I mean, I have a young son and I think about just like, I think, I know you mentioned you have daughters when you just, I think everything has just gotten more and more competitive and just harder. Yeah. And to try to still kind of in this uber competitive environment that we live in and particularly medicine when there are so many just smart amazing accomplished people how do you kind of retain some sense of like a, yeah like you know still feeling good about who you are and and what you can do and what you can contribute and accomplish can can be really really hard mm. um so i yeah i think that it's it's a little easier now i mean i worry about other things now but but I think, yeah, if there was any, if I if there's any way you could kind of give yourself a little bit of window that like it's gonna be okay. Yeah. Uh, I think that that would have would have made a difference. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a great piece of advice. And I'll just finish up by and you've got a lot to offer and a long long way to go, no doubt. But how how do you want to be remembered? You know, it, it's funny, someone asked me recently if they thought, if I thought I was successful. And in many ways, I actually don't feel particularly successful in that I, I think I, I measure my own success in terms of winning hearts and minds. Mm -hmm. And I don't always win the hearts and minds of my patients in terms of convincing them to adopt healthier behaviors or take their medications. And, uh, but you know, on a, on a more, you know, health system wide level or you know health policy level there is still so so much work to be done mm -hmm. so i i don't know what dent i'll be made, able to make but i'm hopeful that i would be remembered as having made some dent in yep. something yeah <laughs> making something a little bit permanently better mm -hmm. and so i don't know which of my multiple swings at the plate Yep. will ultimately have an impact, but I pray that one of them does. Yep. Well, you're definitely, you're having, you're having a lot of uh, big swings at the plate. So, you know, you're giving yourself the best chance you can of, of denting something. That's for sure. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, look, I think, you know, I, I jokingly, but you're obviously having a huge impact on, on multiple levels. Look, Maylan, this has been a really fantastic conversation. I, I, I love the you know, where we started, um, you're talking about you know, this, this openness to reinventing yourself, because I think that's a really valuable thing. You know, I, as I said, I talk to a lot of doctors who feel a bit stagnant in medicine. And I think, you know, to me, that's a, a powerful lesson is just being open to reinvention. I think you, you spoke about the zone of genius. And I think, again, that's another piece, you know, we're not all we're, we're not all the same. Uh, as doctors, we, we've all got different skills and set, you know, skills and things. And even speaks to the final point, you know, our zone of genius may or may not be into getting onto training programs. It may be, you know, being a public advocate. It may be, who knows? There's so many ways we can make a difference. And there, are, and I guess the piece as well, you know, I'm, I'm building businesses to help doctors uh, and through Med World, like that's the course I've taken, not as a practicing doctor. There, there are so many ways in our profession, our, our it's got we do such meaningful work but we are also so broken in many places you know maybe not broken sorry, but but there's a lot of area for improvement 
Um, and, and I just uh, and I and I love the uh, the perspective of of thinking about sharing our ideas as as, as idea gifts. Um, and and I, I think that I've taken a lot from this conversation myself. So look, thank you for putting your time uh, into this and so, you know taking time out on Memorial Day um, to speak with the doctors and myself and the doctors who are listening. It's been it's been a real real pleasure and and and, and, and as I said, it, it's opened my eyes to some great perspectives and I've enjoyed that. Well, thank you so much. I uh, really love the conversation and I'm uh, excited to check out your website more. All right. We'll stay on. Our, I'll, I'll stop this recording and I'll stay on. I'll have a chat with you. But uh, look, to those doctors listening, I hope it's been of value. Um, um, I'd be interested to hear if, you've, if, if, you, if, if you took different messages from me um, because, you know, we've had a good conversation. I'm sure there are different pieces in there that everyone's taken. So, look, I really enjoyed it. Thank you again, Maylan, and uh, thank you everyone who's been listening.